talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Hello and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at Blade, the first of a series of films featuring Marvel's Vampire Hunter from New Line Cinema, originally released in November 1998. Technically, this places it somewhere between a hand arranging a mysterious shipment to New York under the name Twin Oak Shipping Company and Amy Minoru's first birthday, and, you guessed it, there's absolutely no crossover with either of them. But as for Shade stealing the sunglasses that got him his nickname in Luke Cage, well, we'll come back to. That might change in the near future. Anyway, I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I've thought of Blade shortly. Meanwhile, Joining me to give her thoughts on Blade is writer Sophie Davis. Sophie, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at It's Sophie Davis. I write about TV for a few different websites and I host two TV podcasts, Smash Prawns in a Milky Basket, which is about the work of Julia Davis, and It's an S-Pod Thing, where I'm re-watching every episode of S Club 7's mad TV show from the late 90s slash early 2000s. Which is so mad that it is quite possible they actually did a vampire episode in it i'm not sure but before we go any further sophie what happens in blade the titular blade is a vampire hunter who is part vampire himself his mother was attacked by a vampire when she was pregnant so she died in childbirth and the result is that blade has the sort of superhuman strength and agility of a vampire but he is not vulnerable to things like sunlight or garlic like they are he's known to the vampires because he basically goes around killing them at every opportunity and they call him the Daywalker. He has a sort of mentor father figure called Whistler who helps him with weaponry and stuff like that and early on in the film they also meet a woman called Karen who has just been bitten by a vampire herself and she's conveniently a haematologist so she decides she's going to find a way of curing herself before she turns and then amongst all of that there's a bit of a coup going on in the vampire world because this vampire called Deacon Frost thinks they should basically stop hiding and living alongside humans and start ruling over them instead and sort of what he believes is taking their rightful place. And his grand plan is that he wants to do a sort of ritual that will give him some extra special powers and he needs blood from Blade in order to complete the ritual. Well, that was a pretty comprehensive summary. But Sophie, how much did you know about Blade before you saw this film? I don't really remember remember the first time I saw this film. I know I would have been a bit too young to watch it when it originally came out. But when I first watched it, I don't think I had any prior knowledge of Blade at all, really. You know, even though I didn't watch it when it came out, I probably watched it, you know, before Marvel films were the big deal that they are now, you know, kicking off with Iron Man. And yeah, it was interesting to read this week about how Wesley Snipes was
was originally attached to starring a Black Panther film. And then they ended up kind of switching the project to Blade. I know he said they were kind of struggling to find the right director with the right vision. And he was keen for Wakanda to be like it was in the comics. And that would have been quite hard to achieve at the time with the sort of money and technology that was available to them. And so I guess Blade probably felt like a more of an achievable thing because I guess it's a bit more about sort of martial arts and like gore than sort of the high tech gadgets of Black Panther. So that's something that I didn't really know until I was doing my research this week. The interesting thing about that is they had been trying to get a Blade film off the ground since the 80s because apparently there was talk of doing it like a Western with Richard Roundtree. And then there was talk of a kind of old school rap style version with LL Cool J's Blade, which yes, sa- yeah. actually sounds really good. But the odd thing is that he wasn't really a character that would have warranted that kind of attention because the odd thing with Blade is that he was created because of a very convoluted thing involving Spider-Man, which is, are you aware of the Comics Code Authority? No, I'm not. It was a rating system, essentially, that they used to have in America where, you know, because there'd been trouble about comics earlier in the post-war years when Mm -hmm. things were considered to have gone too far, that you had to have a stamp from the Comics Code Authority on the front cover to say, you know, your content was improving, it was above board, it was... Oh, right, okay. Marvel had done very well with that, but Stan Lee, in the very late 60s, early 70s, because, you know, a lot of... I think it was the other way round, really. A lot of hippies were saying, wow, these Marvel comics are switched on. They must all be taking crazy acid like us. I think it was more that psychedelia, you know, picked up on what comics were doing. But Mm -hmm. it got to the stage where Stan Lee thought, we've got to do a story. And he chose Spider-Man for it, where some of the kids mess around with drugs and most of them have a good time, but one has a proper psychotic episode because he thought we've got to try and get the message in a way that's not patronising and not a lie. The Comics Code Authority refused to give them a stamp for those issues. (laughs) And what happened was even like right wing commentators were saying, no, they're absolutely right to do this. The Comics Code Authority is out of touch. So they changed their regulations quite a lot. And that's where Marvel created all these characters that they couldn't have done you know a year or so beforehand like Ghost Rider Luke Cage Shang-Chi Gamora who might be one of the jolly guardians of the galaxy but she is a paid assassin who beheads people (laughs) Punisher Cloak and Dagger and Blade obviously whose background was that his mother was attacked by a vampire and the whole strip's quite horrific but she was a sex worker as well in the original iteration he was born in a brothel also in the 70s what's interesting is that you know the version in this is the kind of post-industrial all dressed in black nine-inch nails-ish look. In the 70s, he's properly at the height of gangster fashion, as it was at the time, like a big, long, green, drop-dead Fred coat and aviator shades. And that's who he always <laughs> was in my head, because he used to just show up in the Avengers and things, until in the 90s, they revived him as a full-on comics character. And it was almost straight away after that that the film talks began in earnest. And when you look back, it's a really unlikely choice in some ways to have gone for a major film with. Yeah, it feels weird, because obviously knowing the way Marvel is now it's very strategic you know they've got a plan for what's coming out in each year and then going back to that it feels so strange that you know the first big Marvel film was like not a major character like there was no grand plan it was just like Wesley Snipes fancies playing this character the Black Panther film hasn't got off the ground 
around. He wants to do Blade instead. Let's just kind of go with it. And it ended up being pretty financially successful. And the main thing that struck me watching it again, now I'm wondering if you thought the same was, I kind of, because I hadn't watched it in quite a long time. In my memory, it was a bit like the sequels to Blade were, and like every kind of horror film has been since. You know, I kind of thought of it as being quite dark, that you could hardly see what was going on, that everyone mumbled, and that ridiculous thing I hate that they do in most things where they don't explain who characters are, the plot is just thrown in front of you, and the audience is almost playing catch-up. This isn't, this is really bright. It's got clearly delivered dialogue. It's got proper film music. There's no kind of long pauses, no long atmospheric breaks. It's just a straightforward, almost an action film, but a gory action film. And what's interesting is that it was one of the things where when they launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they assessed, you know, the previous films that had been done and they didn't really like the plot of Blade or the way the character had been done, but they loved the look of the film and said, that's what we should be aiming for. I think you could draw a straight line between this and the first Iron Man film. They don't look that dissimilar. Yeah, and also I guess the aspect of it that's like casting the lead and kind of building the part and building the film around that sort of charismatic lead. Because I think, yeah, Wesley Snipes is really good here. And I think the film, yeah, it's quite dark and also fun. Like it strikes a good balance. And like you said, it's very entertaining. It just kind of, there's always something happening. There's a lot going on. There aren't any kind of slow periods, I don't think. And yeah, I'd remembered Blade like as a character being quite sort of stoic. Watching it this week, he's funnier than I remembered. Like there's that bit where he calls that vampire Mr. Crispy and just little moments like that. And when he's having that sort of final battle with Frost and it's very intense. And then Frost kind of reassembles himself after he's been cut in half and Blade just silently kind of mouths what the fuck <laughs> like that that made me laugh a lot I wasn't expecting that like there's definitely humor in it but yeah moments as well where it's quite surprisingly brutal like that bit with Udo Kier's character where they're kind of forcibly extracting his fangs and like burning him in the sun I found the teeth pulling quite visceral <laughs> and more brutal than I'd remembered mentioning Wesley Snipes it is easy to forget just how big he was at that point I mean this wasn't just a superhero film the way that you know you get some they're not necessarily star vehicles but he was so big at that point that I think that's what made Blade such a hit was his name and yet you know he never really capitalised on that the other one playing Deacon you've got Stephen Dorff who at the time looked like he was going to be a huge star he's been in things like Backbeat and so on but even then he was doing things like I think might be the same year he did I Shot Andy Warhol and he played Candy Darling you know which is hardly get yourself on the front of the film magazine's material. He was already going a bit more arty and that's where he stayed ever since. It's just odd that they were both huge box office drawers at that point. But when you watch it now, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah, I don't think I've seen Stephen Dorff in anything else. I was thinking about this before and yeah, I have mixed thoughts about Deacon Frost because I think as a villain, he does some really horrific things, but I don't find the performance that memorable. I don't know about you, but I kind of, I remember big moments for the character, like that scene where he's sort of holding that little girl hostage and then he chucks her into the road and it's very brutal, you know, he throws us through some glass. But then in terms of the actual performance and like the sort of I don't know like the mannerisms of the character I wouldn't really be able to tell you what those were it's kind of not that memorable a performance for me 
I think I've got a slightly different perspective because Deacon Frost in the comics, I don't know whether you're familiar with him or not, but he's quite a kind of, I mean, Blade first appeared in, they did a series in the 70s called Tomb of Dracula, which was basically, they realised it was cheap and easy to use non-copyright famous characters. And they Mm -hmm. did a series where a load of Marvel characters fought Dracula, but Blade came into that, but as did Deacon Frost, it was kind of, you know, a typical old grey bearded vampire bloke. Yeah, I heard it was supposed to be an older actor to begin with and then I don't know why but they yeah they went in a different direction but I felt that kind of worked in terms of because to me it felt different in that he was a young upstart trying to overthrow the system and it wasn't like the usual kind of cunning that you get with that character it was just like kind of yeah but I want to be in charge so yeah I think it does work like when he's sort of in the vampire council like he does stand out and obviously he's got this backstory that he wasn't born a vampire like the others were he was turned and that kind of makes him inferior because as well as Blade being you know a half vampire there's also this hierarchy going on within the vampire world where if you're a pure blood then you're at the top of the hierarchy because I was born in 1992 I was thinking of Harry Potter when I was watching all of this that's it's very common sort of thing nowadays isn't it where it's kind of like oh within the world there are different levels of people and you know obviously reflecting certain people's attitudes in the real world as well you know the way you were born is sort of dictating your social status and of course the other major character as you mentioned chris christopherson as whistler is absolutely fantastic i wouldn't have expected chris christopherson to be this good in kind of a it's not an entirely serious role because he has this moment but he's really really apparently they originally wanted patrick mcgowan for it and he wasn't interested (laughs) But, but i think the left field choice was the better choice here because he doesn't play it again doesn't play it like you'd expect that kind of character to normally be he's not like the usual some mystic armorer he's almost like a, a bloke who's run a bike shop for 40 years but yeah. somehow ended up assisting a vampire slayer instead yeah he looks like he's in a sort of biker gang but like a nice one he's a sort of father figure to blade isn't he and yeah the moment where he well he dies but then he comes back in the second film but you know blade comes back and whistler has sort of been attacked and yeah i found that quite upsetting where the way he's sort of under that cloth that's like covered in blood and you kind of see it in the background and you're like oh no because you haven't actually seen what's occurred i found that quite moving it's a bit like in the walking dead when someone dies even if you aren't massively attached to the character the way people die is so kind of brutal you're like oh that's rough and it was a moment a bit like that where yeah he sort of removes the cloth and he's not really looking because he knows what's under there and he doesn't really want to see it i think that was quite a brutal sort of moving death really what did you think by the way of the treatment of the female characters in it because it has provoked some debate in the years since it was released i think there's an element of facilitation to both of them i mean karen jensen you know the hematologist you mentioned is a good character but she is kind of there to service the plot and blade's mother is basically <laughs> used by deacon and there's nothing wrong with the actual portrayals but they maybe aren't written into the plot well enough yeah i think karen Karen's pretty good, you know, considering this was over 20 years ago as well. I think, you know, at the end of the day, she's a scientist. She's obviously very attractive, but I don't feel like the film sort of sexualizes her at any point in particular. She doesn't end up having a romantic relationship with Blade. You know, they do kind of bond, but that doesn't really seem to be, you know, something on the horizon. And she's quite active in the story. You know, she does cure herself of being a vampire before she turns. And she does sort of save Blade from the 
ritual towards the end, doesn't she? Like he's been sort of strung up so they can get his blood and she's the one who comes and sort of gets him down. Yeah, the mother character's another story, really. <laughs> that, yeah, she just kind of is, you know, this tragic figure at the beginning, you know, driving the male lead in his sort of mission. You know, her death has sort of prompted that. And then she shows up at the end to sort of feel him up a bit and seduce him because she's not really his mother anymore. And I feel like that whole thread of it is quite, I don't know, I feel like they don't really play it up as much as they should do. The fact that his mother is just alive and has been alive for his entire life, it feels almost sort of thrown in at the end in quite a casual way. I think I would have liked that to be a bit more dramatic, really. One really interesting detail I only found out the other day was, obviously there will be separate episodes on the two sequels, but one of the problems with them was they couldn't bring in new characters, because I think you know, they're already moved towards the Marvel Cinematic Universe going on, and the Sony Spider-Man films, which I'll come back to in a minute, but there was talk of I think they wanted Moon Knight in one of them and Marvel refused but I didn't know until the other day that the original edit of this was much much longer and it tested really really badly and they actually delayed mm-hmm. it for a year while they re-edited it and shot loads of new fight scenes as well because yeah, I assumed there were long dramatic pauses in the longer edit and they thought mm-hmm. let's replace them with more battles but it lost a post credit scene introducing Morbius the living vampire and all mm-hmm. that anyone seems to know is that Marvel Marvel said, no, you can't use him in the sequels. Now, that's possibly because, although it's taken them a long time to get around to using him, he is in the Sony Spider-Man universe. But that's quite interesting that, you know, there'd been this successful film that was really working. And after that, it was, you can't have any more characters. That kind of hamstrung the sequels. But were they already on the path to something better? Yeah, and I think I read that in that cutscene, that character was being played by Stephen Norrington, the director, I think I read. So if it had ended up being a character in future films, would he have just carried on playing the part, even though he's not an actor? It seems like a little cameo moment. Maybe it wasn't that important, but if it was, you know, they didn't find a sort of a proper actor to play the role, maybe it was just a little throwaway scene at the end rather than intending to lead on to something big. What's wrong, baby?
So overall, what do you think in terms of, because it isn't like, as I mentioned, what you would associate with being a modern, and I know it's, you know, relatively old now, but with being a modern horror film now, it doesn't share much with what you go and see as a new release in the cinema. And interestingly, as we're recording this, Blade is about to come out for Halloween. It's like a kind of special re-release. So is it kind of a, almost a lost world between, I put it more alongside something like A Nightmare on Elm Street than, I don't know, what is the big horror sensation at the moment? Certainly it's nothing like anything like, even though these are quite old, Saw or Hostel or anything. It's almost from a different era of filmmaking. Yeah, I sort of associate it a little bit with the Matrix films because they were not long after that. And not just because of the big black coat, but just the general sort of world and the style. It's quite cool, but also fun. Like, I think maybe that was a late 90s thing, I guess. Like, it it can be very serious, but it can be a bit funny. I think this is probably funnier than the Matrix, to be honest. I can't remember any big laughs in there. But yeah, that's what I kind of associate it with more. I wouldn't really think of it as a horror film. Although, yeah, it was a bit more gory than I expected. I didn't remember the whole thing about that weapon that makes people's heads explode. That was something that had escaped me. So that was, yeah, it's more sort of gory. I wouldn't really say it was scary. But yeah, it's interesting because obviously people talk a lot about Deadpool kind of, you know, breaking new ground as this, you know, adult R-rated superhero film. But then Blade already did that over 20 years ago. You know, it was for an adult audience. Well, what has literally just occurred to me now I hadn't thought about it before was it must have been a complete coincidence that I mean I would place this alongside thinking about it Buffy the Vampire Slayer which had gone into production at the same time you know it's mm-hmm. that kind of but also I completely forgotten about because I started to think was it part of that post Quentin Tarantino thing and he did that vampire film from Dust Till Dawn which nobody remembers now and it's got a lot in common with that really yeah I noticed that before I kind of looked up like you know vampire film releases in chronological order and yeah that was just a few years before that but then there was also things like you know interview with the vampire so I guess Blade also goes against that sort of thing because the vampires in the film are not sort of gothic or romantic (laughs) in any way they're quite sort of icky and the whole thing feels a bit sort of seedy really like the whole vampire world is all just about like you know they're sort of licking blood off each other's faces all the time and things like that and just sort of irritating Blade. I quite like as well how in terms of what the vampire vampires are vulnerable to they've got like the garlic and the sunlight and i think blade tells karen at one point that the holy water and the crosses are just a myth so they kind of leave religion out of it and yeah make it seem a bit more grounded i think like it's not a sort of gothic story it's like it could be the real world and if you come across a vampire you could have a weapon you know in your kitchen that you could use against if you know what to do well mentioning that they're not gothic at all has reminded me i forgot about this it begins with the vampires at a rave, an actual rave. Yeah, it's very of the time. It's completely against what the popular image of vampires is. Now, you know, through things like True Blood and so on, it's almost like they want to have a bit of fun as well as their vampiric That activities. is a very memorable, cool opening scene. And I think that is a really strong, like, entrance for the character. Like, I just looked up that scene on YouTube before and everyone in the comments is like, best character entrance ever. Because, yeah, it is pretty cool. Like, they're just, they've got this sort of blood sprinkler system going on in this 
this club and then you think like oh you know these vampires are dangerous the human there is in danger and then blade shows up and you're like oh no he's the real dangerous one here he's more dangerous than all the vampires and they've all just sort of fallen silent and like dispersed when he's just walked into the room i think that's a very cool scene well the really fascinating thing now is that blade has already been cast for the marvel cinematic universe mahershala Ali, mm-hmm. who was cottonmouth in luke cage a blade film has still not been announced two years after the casting was announced so what is he going to show up in first and also the interesting thing is going to be the only problems i had with the way blade was done in the series of films was that he wasn't english to the extent that i think nobody thinks of blade as english now and they're obviously not going to do that in the films going forward but also mm-hmm. that they've varied by how they've used it in the comics but the whole point originally which gave him some depth as a character and some distinction for the others was he was a jazz trumpeter and quite often he'd be back no, right. hunting you know while on tour and i hope they bring that back in because you know he is quite musical himself so you know it wouldn't be beyond him to learn the trumpet for the role but i'm more interested in whether he will play the trumpet than where he's going to appear first yeah that would differentiate it i can't imagine the wesley snipes iteration of blade no. just <laughs> breaking out a trumpet <laughs> that would be a bit seem a bit out of character but yeah i love how mahershala ali was like i've won an oscar I want to play Blade now. Like, that's the next move. Because I remember that casting being announced not long after he'd won his Oscar. And everyone was like, well done. (laughs) Yeah, he said that it was a film that kind of meant a lot to him growing up. So it's nice for that to be kind of passed down. And, you know, he wasn't approached about it. He just kind of heard that there was a Blade reboot in the works. And he approached them and was like, here's why I want to play Blade. So glad that there's you know a fan stepping into the shoes okay well there's only one thing left for me to ask now i've had to dig deep for one of these again sophie tim guinea who was curtis webb in blade was also clay wilson in the punisher so who was the best i'll give you a clue clay wilson didn't really do very much okay i'll go for the, the blade character then <laughs> i i haven't i haven't seen the other one anyway so i'll take your word for it <laughs> sophie thank you and excelsior cheers If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.